Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News and World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And kids, follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes old and new on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. Oh, nothing makes audiences happier than when we discover that today's guest will be appearing on a New York stage. For the past 40 years, she has delighted audiences as one of this country's most versatile actresses and writers, appearing in various plays, musicals, revivals, and new works that consistently remind audiences of how truly brilliant she is. New York first fell in love with her when Pump Boys and Dinettes came to Broadway and received a Tony nomination for Best Musical. This was followed by another creation of hers, the delightful Oil City Symphony. Then came Assassins, Prelude to a Kiss, Nick and Nora, Redwood Curtain, and a Tony Award for that one. Uh, Picnic, uh, the first revival of Company Steel Pier, Thou Shalt Not, Curtains, and not to mention endless movies and Emmy Award winning TV appearances. To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Fred Ebb, John Kander, Arthur Lawrence, Jeff Daniels, Al Pacino, Meryl Streep, Stephen Sondheim, Susan Stroman, and so many more, here is everybody's girl, the delightful Deborah Monk. Deborah, how are you this morning? I'm fine. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. We, we are so honored to have you. Now, am I correct in understanding that you did not really start theater in high school like a lot of other people did? It came to you a little bit later in life? Yes, I I had never seen a show. I never went to a play. We were we didn't have a lot of money as a family and basically we were TV kids. We watched TV. We didn't even go to the movies that much. So I I didn't know anything about the theater. Mm. And uh, after I graduated from high school, I became a secretary. I didn't wasn't even going to go to college and then I um some friends of mine had gone to a little a small college called Frostburg State uh college now it's called Frostburg State University and they said Deb you can afford this you're so poor that you can probably get all your education paid for <laughs> so I said okay so I thought well I hated doing the secretarial stuff so I thought let me go so I went I got all these um grants and things to go to school and you had to take a and this was a very small college you had to take a uh speech class I decided I will be a teacher an elementary school teacher because I didn't know what else to even think to do sure. and the guy who taught the a speech class was the also did the theater dr press dr david press and i did some stupid speech who knows what it was and he said you should audition for my play 
And I said, I've never seen a play. I don't know anything about plays. And it was the birthday party. Oh, Harold oh. Pinter. To this day, I don't know what the hell it's about. But <laughs> I, I auditioned. He kept saying, you got, so I auditioned for it. And I didn't know what I was doing, what I was saying. And I got the part of Hortense, I think, or is that her name? I think that's her name. I can't remember. But uh, anyway, the first day I go in and there's a set of a kitchen and he says, sit down, make yourself, make, uh, pour yourself a cup of tea and then take the glass or the cup over to the sink. And while you're saying these lines, you'll do that. And I said, okay. And I did what he said for me to do. And he said, well, that's great. And he said, we'll come back tomorrow. So I came back tomorrow and he said, okay, let's run it. And I said, well, what does that mean? I, <laughs> I don't know what that means. And he said, you mean you have to do it again? I said, oh, okay. So I did it again and I made up all new stuff. And he said, no, no, no. You have to do it the same way we did it yesterday. That's called blocking. I said, you mean you do it the same way every single time? And he said, yeah. So that's how naive I was. I knew nothing. And I remember turning when I, I fell in love with the theater because my family's all blue collar. They're, they weren't like loving their jobs. It wasn't, you never heard anybody talk about their job. It was just get money on, you know, get money, put food on the table. Bible, yeah. And um, I remember turning to somebody, I said, do people do this for a living? <laughs> and they said, okay. yeah, I said, I'm going to do this because this is really fabulous. It's so much fun. Well, then Dr. Press smartly said, you're not ready to go to New York. You know, I, I was very, I thought I was a really wonderful actor. And in um, his classes, for some reason, I, could cry really easily. And I remember him saying, uh, and after I cried during a scene, everybody came up to me and I thought, I must be a really wonderful actress because I'm crying. And it seems to be something really easy I can do because I cry all the time. So uh, I did that for a long time. And he finally said to me, okay, we've seen you crying. Can you just do something else now? And I was so shocked. So at that time, everybody smoked. And, uh, and I said, oh, I'll smoke. So I brought cigarettes. And I lit cigarettes. And I rolled cigarettes. I did the whole thing. He said, okay, we've seen you do the crying. We've seen you do the smoking. Can you do something else? So then I thought, oh, my God, food. So then I brought hot plates in, and I made pancakes, and I snapped peas, and I cut up vegetables. He said, all right, we've seen you do the smoking. We've seen you do the crying. We've seen you do the food. Can you just sit there and listen to somebody? And I thought, well, that's not very interesting. I, I didn't know. And I did it. And I realized how incredibly active and wonderful it is. And he really helped me. But he also said, you're not ready to go to New York. you got to go to graduate school because most likely you won't work. Most likely you won't. So you have to have something to fall back on. So I went to Southern Methodist University and I really got trained there. But they also said, after I finished that, the, 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 the way you finish at SMU is that at the time, they had a panel of people and they could ask you any question about the theater right. from the Greeks on. Mm -hmm. And it was really crazy. And at the end of the thing, they said, Deb, we feel you need to go see theater. You haven't seen enough theater. And I thought they were going to say, well, you are ready to go to Broadway and make, you know, and they didn't say that. And that was really yeah. I was trained, but I had no experience with the theater. And I, my first show I ever saw was um equus and of course it was something i've never i was shocked by it all actually mm -hmm. and kind of enthralled and they had this, the people sitting in the back and but the person i kept my eyes kept going to was marion seldes mm -hmm. who was sitting on the bench like this listening forward and i thought oh my god that's the most active thing and i and it may, took me back to what dr press had told me that the act of listening on stage is just as 
riveting. And it was. So that was my kind of journey into New York. Were you glad that you went to SMU? Was that, yeah. uh, you know, in hindsight, you were glad that that was a good choice? You know, it wasn't. Um, yes, because of a couple of reasons. First of all, I was very well trained. We had a Shakespeare class. We had comedy class. We had all these classes and it was an incredible school. However, they chose their favorites. At, at this point, graduate school, they only took like 13 people mm-hmm. and only like five of them were women. And I, when I was going to audition for the school, I had, again, no money. And they wanted me to fly to to SMU and I didn't have the money to do that. So I asked, I said, is anybody from SMU going to be in the DC area, which is where I live? And they said, well, Dr. Hobgood, the head of the department, I said, please, can I go and at least audition for him? So I did. I was a little heavy and I did a, a a piece from Juno the Peacock. I was in my 20s. I was doing a 40-year-old part. So, you know, it wasn't a great audition. And I knew that. And I did the audition for him in this room, uh, this conference room. And then I got on my knees and I crawled over and I said, you've got to take me. You have to. I, I had only $50 to pay for my application fee. And if you don't take me, I don't know what I'll do. I, I, I don't. Anyway, he they, he took me against all of the the other teachers were pissed off because <laughs> they went all over the country and saw people who had been like stars all through high school and everything and college I wasn't so when I got there there was already the teachers were not happy that I was there they and so I didn't I wasn't treated that I wasn't supported that much but I was old enough to to say just keep your head down and do the work. Just learn the work. And I wait. When I got to New York, I didn't get a job for five years. Ooh. I was a waitress and a secretary. And it wasn't until we wrote um, Pumpoys, which came out of my waitressing experience. But for five years, I went to the theater as much as I could. I I couldn't even get an agent. I couldn't get anything. And I would. Um, I would try to sneak into equity, you know, principal interviews. I was married at the time, and my husband had a an old all his old equity cards. I would take them and put my hand over his name and try to get through. And oh I, oh, I would do anything. I was like, and then they kicked me. I said, "What the fuck?" Yeah. Yeah, but I, I for five, so it really humbled me that you know everything humbled. I kept getting humbled, and that was good for me. Right. I don't think I was ready to really experience um a lot of success i don't i don't think i was ready do you remember some other performances that you saw when you first got to the city like mary ann Sellies that was also transformative for you and i saw way? chicago i saw the original chicago oh. and i'd never seen anything like that these both these shows were shocking to me and yeah. sexual and exciting mm-hmm. and i never heard music like that i'd never seen anybody like you know, like Cheetah and Gwen Verdon. I mean, I was just blown away by them. I also, and I can't remember, Rob, I saw a very young Meryl Streep do, an, I, I can't remember the name of it, but it was a off-Broadway um, piece that she did. I can't remember, but I, I did get to see, back then there were, everything was cheap and you could see a show, a Broadway show for 20 bucks, you know? So yeah. I would save my money and just go. I went to see, everything i went to see as much as i could i really took the advice of my and um and it was really helpful to see these incredible performances and it also made me think i'll never be able to do that they're they're too you know part of me thought i I don't know how i could do i was never one of those persons that i could do that they should be hiring me for that i was very like you know how are they doing will i ever be able to do that you know and when you were auditioning did you have a go-to audition song oh my god yes at 20, man, you've had it. If you know what I mean, 
and if I da 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 da, I'm gonna be somebody before the little. That was my song. I would, you know, it wasn't appropriate for everything, but I only knew one song. That was it. <laughs> That's great. But I, it, I don't know if it got me any auditions. <laughs> but uh, I mean, any any shows? I, I, I like I said, I was auditioning for five years. I didn't have an agent though, so it was hard to even get in. I could only go through things that you know that I could find. And were you looking for musical theater as well as plays? Were you had you decided anything? You wanted everything. Right? I, I would take anything. I, I was so desperate to work. I wanted to work. I never felt of myself as a musical singer at all. I'm not a trained singer. I don't read music. I, I did a lot of church singing. You know, that's basically it. But it wasn't like I didn't have that kind of voice. But I would go in for them. But I didn't feel like I was really uh, able. Pump boys, I could, I could do that kind of singing. Because that's kind of, that was based on rockabilly, gospel. Yeah. You know, all the stuff that the six of us who wrote that we all had those histories together and that's what that was. So how did you meet your your crew for Pump Boys and Dinettes? Well, Mark Hardwick, the brilliant Mark Hardwick, who was in our show, and I were at SMU together. Mm-hmm. And he, I remember what, SMU's arts facility is like unbelievable. There's like Picasso's on the wall. There's a big, oh. huge symphonic orchestra space. There's the big Bob Hope Theater. It's gigantic. And when I first got there, I was so uh, you know, how am I going to be going to be here? And I walked around and I got in somehow into the, the balcony of the symphonic, um, uh, the, the symphony orchestra place. And they were doing a, the Dallas symphony orchestra was rehearsing. And I just, I had never heard classical music either. Never knew anything. And I was listening to them. And this guy was sitting at the piano, kind of a skinny guy. And all of a sudden it was his time to play. And he played this. I don't know what they were playing, but it was the most incredible. I'd never heard anybody play like that. And then about a month later, I was cast as a mute maid in a musical. So I didn't have anything to say or sing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I looked over and I thought, who is that guy? I've seen him before. And it was the same guy who played. And that was Mark Hardwick, who was, he could play classical music. He could play rockabilly. And he had a huge gospel. You know, he was a big church boy. So he had all that stuff. And we got to be good friends. And we were both feeling kind of out of it with people there. So we would meet in these, in these, um, rehearsal rooms and play gospel music forever and sing and write songs together and stuff. And so that's how I met him. And when he came to New York, he worked with uh, Cass Morgan and Jim Wan. And he said, you should meet Cass. You all would hit it off. And we did. And she was a great singer, is a great singer. And I didn't have singing background, but I had acting background and I had just worked as a waitress for a few years. So I knew waitresses. So we said, let's, she and I just got together and started writing a show about, uh, we'd never written anything. Uh, about two sisters who want a diner and then we would write we should write a song well let's write a song about the food we do so we wrote the menu song and then we would write about tips and all the things that we and then her husband Jim Wan at the time was doing another show called the pump boy or they were called the pep boys and that was Mark and him and and he and they said let's get together and we got together and it just felt really right and then that's when we started writing the show that's how it all happened when you were doing this, did you you mentioned that you were a character actor, that you are a character actress, and sometimes there's a lamentation that some character actresses feel that it takes a little time to get into their. Yeah. Did you feel that way? Did you, and did you recognize at the time? Oh, life's going to be real good for me when I get a little bit older and I be, I grow into my type. You know, I didn't think of it that way. I didn't really know if I even really understood that I was a character actress mm-hmm. at the time. I just thought 
I just always loved those parts. To me, they were, I never felt that I could really play the pretty, you know, leading lady. uh, I never felt, I was never an ingenue. I just, I just started too late to be an ingenue, but it was just never part of what I felt. I'd much rather do the comedy, you know, something, but um, so I don't know if I thought that way. I don't know if it was just in my mind, you know, uh, that, that I just was drawn to those parts, but I never thought, and maybe that was why, I don't know. It took me a long time to, to get to a, to a place where I could actually, you know, what happened was after pump boys, I was, I was very happy that we had this success on Broadway. And for the first time I made some money, I could pay off so many bills that I owed money to, but I didn't have an agent. I finished on Broadway without an agent. Wow. Nobody would uh, would sign me because they said, well, you're just a country Western singer. And I said, well, I know I'm, I'm an actress and playing this part, you know, uh, but it was really frustrating. And we did the, the cast left and another wonder Maggie LeMay came in to do take over and she had an agent and she was going off to audition for the Actors Theatre of Louisville. Now the Actors Theatre of Louisville is a place that I wanted to work because I, I wanted, I was really trained to be a repertory actress. I could play all different parts. And I thought that would be thrilling. One part, one week. Yeah. And, and um, but I couldn't get in there because they only took submissions with, with, uh, with agents. So on one of my, uh, we were doing Pump Boys now in like Minnesota. We finished Broadway. Now we're doing another. I, th- I guess I'm going to be doing Pump Boys for the rest of my life, but that's okay. I'm happy, you know, that it, it's being done. But I flew myself on my day off to the Actors Theatre Louisville and walked in and said, I want to audition. They said, you can't do that. You're not allowed to. We only take submissions. I said, I don't have an agent, but I flew myself here. And so finally, I got to talk to Corey Madden, who was John at the time John Jory's assistant. And she said, listen, we don't take people this way. I said, I understand that, but I flew myself here. I Can I at least do my piece for you? I can't remember what my piece was, but it was better than the Juno and the Paycock. <laughs> I did that. And she said, listen, thank you again, but I cannot really uh, help you at this time. I said, okay. I said, I just want you to know, I will fly myself back here. If there's something you feel like you want, you would um, think I'm right for. And I left. And then after that, um, Susan Kingsley, who was one of the great actresses of, of Louisville, was uh, was uh, tragically killed in a car accident on her way back to do the Humana Festival. And Bill Master Simone had written a play for her called The Undoing that John Jury was going to direct. And uh, they were all in mourning. John was her best friend. and But he had to come to New York to cast this part. They had to recast this iconic woman's part. And as he was leaving, Corey said, you might want to see this girl. So I got the audition and I got the part and it was unbelievable. And that all happened because I went on my own, you know, it wasn't because of an agent. And, um, and so I got to be at the actress theater Louisville for three years doing parts for the first time that were actually parts. I would never get cast in New York. They were leading parts and wonderful. And I, it was really where I honed my skill with new work, new contemporary work. And John was a great teacher and a great mentor. And I learned a lot. And after three years, I remember thinking I could be here for the, another 10 years and never go back to New York. I said, I better just bite the bullet, break this tie I have and go back and see what I can do. What are some lessons that you learned from John Jory that you still take with you today when you're working? You know, one time we, I was doing the first play I did was this undoing, which was a very, you know, it was an alcoholic woman and a chicken ranch and she was ripping off chickens. Head. I mean, it was like crazy. It was very serious. And at the time I was very 
you know, as a young actress, I thought I got to prepare and prepare and I'd be up in the corner and he would come up to me before these big emotional scenes and start talking to me and kind of about light, light, uh, you know, like not like, just like everyday things, like how you doing? And I was, I, I wanted to say, John, I'm trying to prepare, you know, but he was like, talk to me. And he always tried to get me not to go in like this, but to let it, what he was doing was opening up my mind and go in as an open and let it all come instead of forcing it, you know, to make, that was a great lesson. I always now, before I enter, I just take a big breath. I usually say my first line on my head. So I won't at least mess that up because that happened to me once I went on stage and couldn't remember my first line. So now I say my first line and then I say, let be what be I'm, I prepared, I'm ready and let me go in instead of like making it happen, you know? The other thing about Louisville, they it was all about the playwright. You respected the playwright's words, and you know, many times I've been in rehearsals, and an actor will say, "I don't, I, my character wouldn't say that." We weren't ever allowed to say that at the Actors Theater. You, you were there to do that, and what it taught me was, I think maybe I'm thinking right now, my actor, my my character wouldn't say that, but if I keep working on it it'll feel incredibly real and it's the right thing to say. So he really taught me to respect the language of the playwright and not to be so quick to say, I won't say that. Cause basically that's what's what you're saying is I don't know what I'm doing right. you know, yeah. instead of, I don't know how to use that. So those were really major uh, things that have helped me to this day. What do you look for out of a director to, to you? What is the ideal director actor relationship? I like a director who knows what they're doing that has done has done all of their work and has a vision now within that vision things can happen but there's a there's a big there's a really solid vision for it so that if an actor does something that's not like they thought they can take that in or if the director thought it's got to be done this way and then they see an actor do something different they say oh I didn't think about that. So there's some give and take in this relationship, but it it needs to feel like you have somebody in control, somebody who is allowing you to try things, who's not stifling you right away. But also, if you're really off course, will gently guide you back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, I, I think um, also a director who is has a sense of humor. Mm. Uh, and who is kind. I, I just don't think we need to be bullies to get yeah. this work done. And I've been in that situation, uh, you know, several times. And it's, it's, it's such a, it's, what they don't realize is it's so hard to get over that just to get back to the work, you know. Mm. And when you get a role, how do you begin your your character preparation? Do you, uh, you know, sit down and write down, okay, the objective here in this scene is blah, blah, blah. Or do you just go into the rehearsal hall and operate on gut instinct? Well, I read it a lot of times mm-hmm. because I think that reading it a lot helps me to understand um Sometimes it's not in your lines. It's it's what other people say that you start to learn about your character. So I try to read the sh- read the play to know what the th- what is it about. I make up. I also usually make a list of questions because I always oh. have a lot of questions about things. And and sometimes a director will say, "I don't know if I can answer that yet," mm. which I love, you know, because because we're going to find it together. But there's something about it for me when I when I when I find something I love, I just can't wait to get in the theater. And and I don't always have the right 
I, I always don't understand what I'm saying right away. It takes me a while to really get it. Uh, I've been I've been cast as a lot of these really smart women, and sometimes I have to look up every word to know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. And then people think that I'm really smart. <laughs> but uh, I if I like I have to like the character, even if they're a, a, an evil character. I have to mm-hmm. something about them I have to to like because I feel you have to to like these people. But I also have I've learned. This is all because, you know, I've been in business for so long. I used to go in and have a way of working. I would memorize my, I can memorize my scenes before I go in, do it. And I would be so judgmental about other people's processes. And there'd be like, if there was 20 people, I mean, to myself, I wouldn't say it out loud, but I would say, why are they doing that? You know, about that instead of just minding my own fucking business, you know, but, uh, I finally learned, oh my God, there's a thousand ways to do this. Every actor's going to have it. And that was a great lesson too, to let go of my preconceived notions from my training and what I learned, what works for me and let everybody have their own way to come together as a company, you know? Do you like a lot of table work? I do. I don't, I, I like some table work. I don't like to be at the table for too long. Yeah. Because there's always that moment when you get up and you think, now what the fuck do I do? You know, but it's like hard to like get off. But I do believe it's important to, I love the opportunity to turn to the actor and really talk to them or across the table to talk to them and ask questions. But I mean, yes, I mean, I, th- I do think table work is really great, but I don't like too much of it. I think you can get settled into it. And uh, of course. Yeah. So now we'll jump back. So you you have this amazing run in Louisville and you decide to come back to New York. Is Oil City Symphony the first thing that you do when you come back? Yeah, and I thought of all these, I want to be, you know, I want to be a legitimate <laughs> actress. And then I come back and we do Oil City Symphony. But that was, again, Mark Hardwick, the brilliant Mark Hardwick was, you know, we all watch, you're too young to know these shows, the Lawrence Welk Show. Oh, and we all yeah. we loved the Lawrence Welk Show. And okay. the idea of, uh, and, and we played, I think one of the first songs we played was our rendition of uh, Exodus. Now I play the drums and I had learned to play the drums during Pump Boys and I love them. So he came over to my house one day and said, let's play Exodus. We did it, you know, and then we came up with this idea of these four kind of nerdy people who were into music, who thought they were going to be, you know, big stars. And then they graduate from high school and one becomes a mailman, one becomes a housewife and, you know, they become, they're humbled down, but they put together this one concert to honor their music teacher. And it was a really sweet show all about, about, about the love of music. So that was just a, so much fun to do and so much fun to write and, and to be together. And uh, yeah, again, it was a surprise that it, it lasted as long as Man, it, it, yeah. it ran. And I remember, the, you know, we were, lo- we were a little short. The show was, was short. And one of our producers said, you need more, you need to put more something else in the show. I said, Mark, do the hokey pokey. So he started playing the hokey pokey and I started doing it. And we did the hokey pokey until we kind of filled up that time. And so then opening night, we're doing, put your right hand, the hokey, and I'm going, oh my God, the New York Times is here watching <laughs> me do the hokey pokey and we're going to get a terrible review. But they, they, they got the charm of it. So mm-hmm. it was, it was a really sweet show. I, I wish it would come back someday. I think it's a really sweet show. Hard though, hard to cast. You have to have it. Mark was a brilliant piano player. And then we had a, a Mary who did the violin. Mary it. yeah. Brilliant. So, I mean, my part's easy to cast. Uh, right. Just banging on the drums, but the other parts are actors, singers. This is like this predates how it got so popular. You know, these shows where everyone plays everything. This yes, is, this yes, is, we did. We we yeah, 
because yeah, I couldn't get into a legit show. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I love that. Make your own work. Make well, own you know, work. it helped me a lot, and uh, and and uh, it gave me um, gave me a chance to work, and mm-hmm. and and also I did like I love creating, collaborating with people. You know, on these shows, it was fun. Then yeah. it was Prelude to a Kiss your first like legitimate thing in New York where people said, yes. oh, "Okay." Can you tell us about that experience? Well, I had gone to Circle Rep uh, many times to see shows uh, back then because I lived down in the village. I used to walk by it every day, you know, and um, a friend of mine was going to audition. They had a lab, you know, they had their repertory company of actors, which they which got paid, you know, the salaried actors like Judd Hirsch and all of them. And then they had a lab and there was an opportunity to audition for the lab. And the lab would be for readings and things like that. But they were like lower than the rep company. So I auditioned for the lab and I got in. And um, I did a reading of Prelude to a Kiss. Now, they said, you're way too young for this. But I did the reading of it with Mary Louise Parker. And they said, you know, we'd like to we'd like to do this part, but you're too, I said, I, but wait a minute, what if I got the wig and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we got a wig and put it on and they accepted me. So I got to do the the production off Broadway with Alec and um, Bar- Barney Hughes, the great Barney Hughes. And uh, it was just fabulous. And then I was able to move with it to Broadway. So that's how I got that. But that again came from, I remember somebody telling me when I was auditioning for the lab, now I've already done a Broadway show. I've done a couple things. They said, you shouldn't be auditioning. They should be asking you. I said, well, they're not. (laughs) Nobody's asking me. So what is the choice? Do I wait for someone to ask me or do I actually go forward? So I have to say that's always been a driving force for me. I don't feel like I need to. I I will audition. I'm doing a show now called The Gilded Age, which is a television show. Wonderful. I auditioned for it. They didn't offer me that part. And I thought, you know what? It's worth it to me. I'm going to go in and audition because I think it's a great part. So I still feel like it's not all the time would I choose to audition if I feel like I've done this enough that I should blah, blah, blah. But I will. So I auditioned for that. And I'm, I'm really glad I did because that that got me my first Broadway show. Do you like the audition, like auditioning itself, not necessarily the process, but actually going in the room, meeting new people and performing for the day? I've learned to like it. I I. Back in the 90s, I took a um, improv class. At the time, I was married and my my um, my mother-in-law, who was this little Jewish lady, <laughs> wanted to take it with me. So we took this class together, but nobody knew we were related. But what I learned, there was this, this exercise called Yes And, where it taught you how when you're doing a, when, when most people get together and do an improv for the first time, somebody will come and say, would you like a drink? No, thank you. Well, you can't say that because that ends it. So you have to say... Uh, would you like a drink? Yes. And can I get a sandwich? And that keeps it and it keeps it going. But it's something you have to train to do. You have to be learned. So they put you in two lines and one person would start, one person would answer and the third person. So for example, it could be, um, I saw you at the store. Yes. And I got steaks. Yes. And can you invite me over for dinner? Yeah. So Marion and I, Marion and I were together for this. And I said, I, she's, she started by saying, I saw you with my husband, George. I go, yes. And he's going to leave you and come with me. And she oh. said, yes. And fuck you, you bitch. That's what mm. she, and so that was like, not part of the improv, but and she was like, so old. And she, I could never heard her say that. Yes. And fuck you. <laughs> anyway, but that idea of 
going yes and and being open to anything, what I realized up to that point, my auditions had been about what I thought the directors mm. wanted, what mm. I thought that mm. the uh, playwrights wanted. Then I, instead of, so I would go in not really having a plan. I was just doing what I, I th- and I'd see other people auditioning and I'd change it to do what everybody else was doing. I said, and after that, I said, I'm going to go in and do what I do. And it may be wrong. And it may be totally 100% off, but at least I will be myself and do something. And it'd be all of a sudden auditioning became fun. I didn't always get the parts and it could be very disappointing, but auditioning changed totally for me because I went in always prepared, 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 memorized, ready to go. But also I always would say in my auditions, um, they say, do you have any questions? And if I did, I'd ask them. But if I said, I don't, but I'll try. I've worked on something and you can let me know if you want me to try something different, which says to them, she's ready to try something different. So it just opened it all up for me. And I believe me, I don't always get everything I've auditioned for, but it's never been like this horrific experience. And so after Prelude comes Assassins. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that experience and how that all came about? You know, we do, we've been having all this 30 years since Assassins. So we've been having all of these things online. Yes. Doing all, and I cannot remember what I auditioned with. I don't think it was a 20 man. You've had it. I, don't think it <laughs> I can't remember. You know who would remember is Paul Ford, who remembers everybody's. Oh, oh amazing. I can't remember what I sang. Uh, but I know I was terrified. I didn't know anybody in this group. I didn't know John Weidman. I didn't know um, Sondheim. I didn't know Jerry Zachs. And I didn't uh, know Paul Gimignani. I mean, I didn't know anybody. I didn't even know anybody in the cast who got mm. cast. And they had done a workshop of it. And Christine Baranski had played that part in the workshop. Oh. Um, and uh, so I, I wasn't really putting a lot into it to get this part. Uh, but... It must have gone well. That's all I can say because I can't remember. But uh, what I do remember is I, I got one of my first movies, which was a very small part in this movie called What About Bob? But it was running late. And I was going to be late for my first day of rehearsal for Assassins. And on my way out, somebody said, what are you going to do next? I said, well, I'm going to go. to I have rehearsal to, uh, tomorrow. I'm going to be late for Assassins. They said, well, you know, Jerry Zachs always fires somebody from his company every time. And I went, oh, my God, that's going to be me. Ooh. I thought, And also, I don't read music. And they didn't know that. So I thought the first time I, when I finally got there, I didn't get fired. And we were all learning a group song. Maybe um, you want to kill a president or whatever it was. All of us were, and there's Victor Garber and Johnson Hidari and Terry Mann. I didn't know anybody. And I thought, oh my God, what are they going to find out when they don't read music? And back then you had tape recorders. Mm-hmm. And at the end, Paul, Paul, Jim and I said, okay, does anybody want to tape this? And I went, oh God. So I, I held up my tape recorder. And then I looked down the line. Everybody held up their tape recorder. So I thought, okay, I'm going to learn it. But that song was so hard, you know, got this really great gun. Shit, where is it? That was really great. Right. I mean, I had to, and I had to like pound it out. And of course, Victor and Terry and Jonathan would make fun of me every time when I was pounding out my, my part. But that was an incredible experience. And we got to be, some of my best, dearest friends came out of that. We were, we came together to do this piece. And then uh, the, the Gulf War started and, uh, President Bush was was a was a hero in, in many ways and in many people's minds, and um, they hated us. So mm-hmm. half the audience would get up and walk out of the show. And this was at the old Playwrights Horizons. It was a tiny little theater, and that stage is so high you can see everything. You know, so it was a hard. But we were all in one big major 
dressing room downstairs with just curtains. And so we all got to be very close. I'll never forget it. And, and Sondheim was incredibly thankful and supportive of us, as was John Wyman, and as was uh, Jerry. So it was a, it bonded me in some way to this experience and to work at playwrights, uh, you know, and all that stuff. So, it, but it was hard. Yeah. It was hard to do. I remember hearing Stephen Sondheim talk about this. There was a possibility of us moving it, but then it all fell apart. I mm. forgot what happened. And I remember he gave us a party at um, his house and I, there was all these pictures on the wall and there was one of him and Jerome Robbins and um, Arthur Lawrence all sitting there and it was West Side Story. And he came up behind me and said, oh yeah, that's when we found out that the New York Times gave us a very bad review. I said, you got a bad review for West Side Story? He said, most of my shows got bad reviews. He says, only in revivals. That they've, and I thought, well, that was a great thing to hear. I thought, oh my God. So I've gotten, I haven't gotten a lot of always good reviews, you know? So it was an, another thing I learned that you just keep working. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you, a bad review uh, is really hard and really upsetting and really sad, but it's one review and then you move on. You know, he really helped me with that. Hello there, this is Eva Gabor and Eddie Albert. Yes, before we were on Green Acres, we were both Broadway babies, and we love listening to Behind the Curtain, Broadway's living legends. And don't forget to tell them to put pasties on, and a pastry, uh, no, don't put pasties, go to patreon.com and set a donation. Yes, patreon.com, oh, do it for me, not for Zsa Welcome to the theater, darling. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So after Assassins, now we're going to talk about Arthur Lawrence. We're going to talk about Nick and Nora. How did that come about? And what was that process like? We've heard it from a lot of different people on the show. So we'd love to get your take on it. Um, I auditioned for that. I Again, I can't remember what I sang, but um, Arthur was very excited to have me be a part of this. He was very supportive. Um, and um, we did a work, a little workshop of it. And, uh, and right after that, I got Redwood Curtain mm-hmm. and we were going and Redwood Curtain was going to go to, uh, I think we went to Philadelphia and then um, see, oh no, we went to Seattle, Philadelphia and the, Go- and the Globe. 
out to do it before we were going to bring it into New York. And he said, um, I, I said, I told him I, when I got that part, because Lanford Wilson sent me that script with a note saying this might be a piece of shit, but I wrote it for you read it. So I, I, he got that. I got that because of being in the lab at uh, circle rep again. Wow. So I told, I called Arthur and said, Arthur, I'm going to have to turn down the Broadway production of Nick and Nora because I got this play silence. He said, is it a good play? And I said, yes. He said, all right, open the show for me and I'll let you out, which was unheard of. So Arthur could be, you know, tough, but he was willing to let, he wanted me so badly in the show. So, so I was able to, that was my contract that I was going to, I did all those, went all those places to do grab a curtain, came back, opened Nick, we went into rehearsal, opened up Nick and Nora, which was really tough because he then turned, I mean, it was really hard. I, 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 he was so mean to most all of us, except for Faith. Faith, Faith's role worked, but all the rest of us were getting like killed every night. And I remember one note session, he was going around to each person and I always had a pen and paper, to take my notes down. And he was going around and he said, and Deborah, I don't know, try anything. <laughs> And I started to write that down. And then he turned to the rest guys, does anybody have any ideas? And I remember Christine Baranski said, I can't believe he just said that to you. He also, <laughs> after I tried to talk about this wig thing, and I, and I told him, you know, uh, that I wanted to try a new wig, we, he finally got a new brown wig. He came to my <laughs> dressing room. He knocked on the door. He, you look like a whore on stage slam and that was it so you know it was that and I, another time I remember i had to say a line um i couldn't bear a house with a lanai tonight <laughs> i didn't know what a lanai i had to look it up it's a it's an outside porch yeah. and every time i would say it people would be watching and then i'd say i couldn't bear a house with a lanai tonight and everybody would turn what's the what's a lanai you know, <laughs> all the whole audience turned and then when i said I finally had the courage i say arthur every time i say that line they don't know what it means he said fuck them and that was it. Walked off. So you know, it became really hard to do. It was really a tough show, and you had to have a sense of humor. Uh, part of it, I just had to be able to laugh at some of these things, you know. But I remember when I did Nick and Nora, I got a beautiful note from Stephen Sondheim saying, "I just saw you in the show." And you, so I put that up on my dressing. I said, "You know what? No matter what's going on, there's always something will come out of it." But I didn't have to worry about getting out of the show because the show closed <laughs> really quickly. Uh, but it was my, it was my first big musical. Yeah. So I didn't know what it was like to be with uh, an orchestra and that was really fun. So I, I got to experience that, which I loved by the way. It was fun. And then Redwood Curtain comes in, um, yes. and a Tony award. Oh, and a Tony award. And a Tony award. Tell us a little bit about, um, what was Redwood Curtain about and what was it like? It's a two character play. Is that correct? Three. Three, I'm sorry. And so what's it like working with such a small company of actors for such a sustained amount of time? Again, it was great because I'd done so many um, new modern plays at mm -hmm. Actors Theatre Louisville. I was used to working with, you know, uh, smaller groups or whatever. Um, but uh, Marshall Mason was, is, is a great director. He, he's, he understands every character and he can play every character, I mm -hmm. think. Uh, and, of course, Mar uh, uh, um Lanford Wilson is, is, is one of our greats, you know? Um, and uh, going into rehearsal for it, 
Marshall had a way of working, which I'd never done before, which he would take, say there's a scene, a numbered scene. He would take a part of that scene and give it his own idea. That's a scene for him. And he would name it number one scene. And he would say to us all, you have to memorize this before we start rehearsal, that scene. That, that was in rehearsal. And I'd never had that before. I've always had that idea, like, yeah, I'm going to memorize it as I go. So I was forced to, and you know what? It was a great freeing experience to have mm-hmm. it, the words out and, and just to be able to do it. But I'll, I'll never forget this. Uh, the play, by the way, I'm sorry. I didn't answer your no, question. No, no, no is about a, a woman's uh, family who owns a big redwood forest up in, the, in, in um, the Northwest. And she is working hard to protect it. Uh, there are other companies that want to come in and, and, cl- and clear cut it, meaning take it all down. And this is like hundreds and hundreds of years of growth. And she always cut it very, very specifically in a small way while the other trees were growing to protect it. And so she's up against the board who wants to just clear cut it. At the same time, um, this was right after the Vietnam War mm-hmm. and there was a, a vet played by Jeff Daniels who was troubled after the Vietnam War. And a lot of, I think there were thousands of vets that lived in this this forest because it was temperate. It wasn't that cold and they could shop. And also the neighboring towns were sympathetic and would leave food outside for them a uh, on the porches and stuff, so they could actually live there and survive there. And then re- there was a young um, Vietnamese, half Vietnamese, half American girl who was my my niece, uh, who was always looking for her father. My brother was her father, mm-hmm. but she never, she always had a question about who her real father was because he he, he adopted he was over in Vietnam and he adopted her, and she was always wanting to find her real father. So those were the dilemmas that were going on. And um, at the end of the play, uh, she thinks that the vet is her father. Uh, And what she finds out is that my brother, her real father, actually had an affair with a woman in uh, a Vietnamese. And so she's that she was actually with her whole father the whole time until he died. Mm-hmm. It was really moving and beautiful piece and very, very funny, you know, uh, because that's what Lamford Wilson does. He kind of tugs at your heartstrings at the same time. Yeah. Um, um, makes you laugh hysterically, you know? So it was a great part. And my character was this very knowing, very funny. I was Lamford Wilson. Lamford Wilson is one of the funniest people I've ever met. And he was this part, Geneva. He was Geneva. And mm-hmm. so it, I just had to look at him sometimes. You know, I met, I'll never forget, you know, one time we were doing the rehearsal and I was doing a line. And from the back of the room, he yelled out, I've written you five great lines and you're fucking all five of them up. <laughs> <laughs> And I, and for some reason I had, I said, leave me alone. I'll get it right by the time we get to Philadelphia. But (laughs) I learned that sometimes with these directors, the tough ones and right, you have to, you have to learn the skill of a comeback. And if it's funny, it's better. Same thing with Arthur Lawrence. Arthur Lawrence. I remember the first time I got up to do my little song with um, Joanna Gleason. Um, I was doing my little song with her and Barry Bostwick. Arthur Lawrence was sitting there like this, watching with his arms crossed. And when I finished, he said, I thought you did musical comedy. And I was like that. And Joanne came up, put her arm around me. She said, and this is when you say to Arthur, yes, I do musical comedy, but I never said I did it well. (laughs) And she taught me the skill with Arthur. Because if you start crying, Mm -mm. jugular. So I learned, I was learning that skill, how to wait off these sometimes really tough things, which could destroy you and would have destroyed me as a young actress and just try to find a way to get through it. 
but but it was I, I learned because they were these were tough these were tough people at the same time they wanted me to do this part you know um uh, and I was so I had to remember that that even though it's tough to go through I was cast in it and there's a reason why I was cast so yeah and you know, going from someone like Arthur Lawrence to Scott Ellis, who you've worked with so many times, so many times. Um, what do you enjoy so much about uh, that relationship? Well, the first time I worked with him was in Picnic, mm-hmm. and he had never worked with me, but we were both friends with uh, uh, Victor Garber. And Scott called Victor and said, "Do you think Deb could do this part?" And he didn't. We didn't know each other, and it was the first time I got an offer without auditioning. Oh, that was I love the first those. offer only, and I didn't know I had never had one of those before. And so I love that he had that. Also, he has a great sense of humor. He also has. He comes with. Bi- he used to come with Bibles. He would come with so much research on every show, and you get these like things on every show I did with him, and it was really fun because he, he really. He like when he did She Loves Me, he went to Budapest. You know, I mean, he went there. I mean, he does he does that kind of thing, but he um he knows what he wants, and yet he has that thing that I said, he has a way of letting you try stuff and also hone you back in. He puts together great companies. I love the casting. I mean, I still think to this day that 12 Angry Men is one of the most perfect plays I've ever seen, mm. one of the most perfect casts I've ever seen. Um, I think he just always has a real affinity for casting. And he loves what he usually, the projects he picks, he loves passionately. And now after Picnic Comes Company, and you're brilliant in it, but I, was it intimidating to know it's the first revival? And and yes. Miss Stritch gave such an iconic perform. How do you... How did you create the character of Joanne? And what do you like about her? You said you have to like something about the character. What do you like about her? Well, I think she really, really, truly cares about Bobby. I think she loves him and wants the best for him. You know, uh, I, I think that relationship is very, very special. Um, she doesn't like, it's not It's not outwardly so, but I think she really, really cares about him as one of the strong forces behind trying to help him. Um so there's a mother, you know, the maternal thing that doesn't, it's not, I said it doesn't always show, but I think it is there. I, I've also learned that just because some people speak directly, it doesn't mean that they're an unkind person. Mm. And I've learned a lot about that because I've played a lot of characters like that. Uh, and there is something to somebody who can speak directly and honestly which is a good thing. I wasn't brought up to do that. We were brought up to, you know, shadow everything and being really nice and being sweet and, you know, uh, not saying anything bad. And you don't want to use that to hurt anybody or to manipulate anybody. But sometimes the honest truth said in a way that's direct and honest is a good thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that was, I, I did love that about her. Then John Kander and Fred Ebb and Steel Pier. How does this come about? This was because of Scott Ellis. Okay. They, they did not know me and, um, but he, but they trusted him and they cast me and John Kander is one of the great, uh, voice coaches. He, he really helped me to feel, I remember everything just opening up and I was able to belt all of a sudden I was able to be a belter and I never thought of myself as that before. 
uh, also what they did, and they taught me, we'll put it in a key that's good for you. Now, yeah. sometimes they don't do that. And I went, well, what an incredible idea, <laughs> you know, to give me a key that I can actually hit and feel comfortable in. Um, and then Freddie Ebb and I became such close friends. I mean, he made me laugh more than anybody else. He was one of those great guys that could sit in the audience and write jokes and write things to put in the show. And I'll never forget, like, um, when we were rehearsing, uh, there was uh, a, uh, one of the actors, oh my God, Bradley, who would walk by me in a Mr. Peanut outfit and just mm-hmm. walk by me. And I would just give him a, a bad look. And Freddie said, Deb. And he, came, he said, next time he comes by, I say this line. So next time, without anybody knowing, he walks by and I, I, and I look back and go, what are you, nuts? <laughs> I mean, he came up, but he would come up with these things just like that and put them in, you know. And Freddie and I, uh, had a great, we came together loving jokes. Mm. So we would tell each other dirty jokes all the time. And we would, just, and then he also was a great limerick writer. He would write limericks and he would leave them on my phone. I'd it'd be on my answer machine. I'd click it and you wouldn't hear, hey, Deb, this is Freddie. All you hear is there was an obstreperous youth who was stuck in a telephone booth when struck with a fever. He screwed the receiver and knocked up a gallon Duluth <laughs> and then he'd hang up. So we, we were bonded by these dirty jokes and we would tell them to each other and laugh. And then he would call Kay Ballard and they would tell jokes. So we had this, we just loved those and we would laugh a lot uh, all the time. He also would make me laugh. I mean, he got kicked out of the rehearsal because we would do, we were rehearsing and we had to do this. We had to do actually a merit. We had to do a, a, run, a jog, a run around the theater. And, you know, it was part of the marathon, do a run. And I, and he would be sitting in a chair down, you know, this was in this, in the studio, not in the Broadway show. And I would, every time I run by him, he'd go, go Debbie. You know, like, <laughs> oh, and then I would start laughing so hard that I like wet my pants and I couldn't finish the thing. And so Scott had to like kick him out of things. So he would make, then I would start laughing that everybody would start laughing. So he was just wonderfully funny. He also, you know, I understand, you know, he really had this wonderful relationship with Liza Minnelli and helped her. And he, he had that ability he helped me too. Helped me with my, helped me get that song to a point where I could do it. I mean, he really was a great coach in learning how to do these things. And mm-hmm. and and, and um, but mostly we just always would laugh, you know. Mm-hmm. And I remember we were at Scotty and, and Freddie and I were at dinner together at um, Joe. Where were we? Well, I forget where we were. Joe Allen's. I forget where we were. But he started choking, and I got really nervous. And went over and um, somebody came over and gave him the Heimlich maneuver and something popped out. And he said, and for my next number. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, he always had this kind of thing happening. Yeah. You know, uh, he he was amazing. I remember him saying, uh, uh, he said, you know, I was born on an elevator going up. <laughs> well, he always would say. He just had, it never stopped. It was the mm-hmm. mind, but I just loved his, he could be also very, could be like a naughty boy. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he could be a naughty boy and say things uh, under his breath to things. I said, Freddie, stop it. Stop <laughs> it. You know, like that. But we got to be very, I miss him so much. He was a really uh, wonderful, wonderful person. And, and I also got to say John Kander and I are very, very close. He's one of the, 
you know, Freddie always called him the Christ child because everybody loved, because, you know, Johnny was like the perfect guy and the Freddie was kind of the bad boy. So he yeah. always called him the Christ child. <laughs> but, um, but he's one of the great guys and we're very, very close. Did did Mr. Ebb get to see any of the readings or workshops of curtains that you were involved in? He did. He did. He died during that. That's that's my memory of that because I remember that we we lost. Yes, absolutely, he did. We lost Fred. We had done. We did workshops for like five years, mm. and the first book writer was Peter Stone. Mm-hmm. That was Scott Ellis had heard about this piece they wrote. He begged them to give it to me, read it. And we did a reading of it with Peter Stone there and Freddie and John. And it was barely, it was like a, there was a medieval play in there. There was all these different things, you know, but we all did it. You know, of course we'd do anything for them. And then Freddie died. Mm-hmm. Freddie died first, I believe. And then uh, John wanted to finish the show. John decided there was like six shows or five shows they'd written. I might be getting some of this wrong, but there were five or six shows they had written. He said, I'm determined to get all of these produced. And this was one of them. And then Peter Stone died. And then they needed um, a, a book writer. And that's when they brought on Rupert Holmes. And so that's how that that happened. But there was a moment there when we weren't sure if it was going to go on. Mm. And it was all John Kander who said, I'm determined to finish these shows. And I remember our opening night, we had the brick wall behind us. They put up at the top Freddie's name and um, Peter's name. So we, every time we turned around, we could see their names. It was really great to see them. So they were part, they were there, but he got to see somebody. He got to hear me um, sing uh, it's a business, which I is yeah. a great song. And in fact, at his, they did a little memorial for him, and I sang that because uh, that's that's Freddie Ebb lyric wise at his best. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, all of them are, but that was a great song. What a great way to honor him too! What a great yeah. and and it's incredible that you know there's there's such a desire to have the unfinished work be seen by the public. That's yeah, so beautiful. You um, know, we we weren't sure the show was going to work. It just wasn't a clear, we weren't sure. And I remember we were all going to LA to try it out and none of us were sure, but there was no doubt that we were doing it Yeah, because we all loved Freddie and John. And, you know, I thought no matter what, I'm not, I'm not taking, and I told my agents that I'm doing the show. And this, I'm not that, believe me, nobody's like knocking at my door trying to get me to do something else. But I said, <laughs> I'm doing the show to the very end. I'm going to do this show because of them. And that's got, we all felt that way. Everybody felt that way. And the whole cast, it was an amazing thing. And another thing that Scott Ellis did to kind of pull the whole show together was, you know, there were, there were, there's always on Broadway musicals, there's the, the, the incredible ensemble, right? And most of the time the stars are out there doing it and the ensemble's dancing around doing backup. But in this show, they all were in the show and they gave them all names. They all had their own names. And Scott said, to them, I want you all to write your bio for the uh, as your character for, and they came in and they read them. Yeah, they were so amazing, and so that show, unlike any other show, the the ensemble was part. They were part mm-hmm. of the. They all had their names. They all had something specific they did, and it, I think it was one of the reasons the show is so successful, and also why it's done in like high schools and colleges because there's parts for everybody. Everybody has a part that gives them a little light to shine here and there, and I think that's partly, you know, the wonderfulness of of Rupert 
mm-hmm. and um, John Kander too, and, and doing that and, and bringing that on, you know. And also, you know, at, at this time, I feel like every time I saw a TV or movie that was filmed in New York, you would make an appearance in it, um, was which is great. I I was always so happy to see you. Uh, and you got an Emmy Award, right, for for NYPD Blue. I did, which did, was shocking. Why? Why shocking? Because the first time I got, I can't remember, I can't see it, but they, I got a call. They were the, the, the Dennis. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, Dennis Franz's character Sipowitz's son was um, Dom DeLuise's son. I can't remember his first name in it, but he was killed in the show. So they were looking for somebody to play uh, Sipowitz's first wife. And they did a big, huge audition. And I auditioned here in New York and I got it. Unbelievably so. And I went out there and I did this one scene with Dennis where he comes to the house. I'm My son has died and it's a very moving scene. That was it. And then about three years later, I can't remember how many years later, they called again and they wanted me to come back. And then I came back as a, uh, I was a I, I wasn't a regular, but I came back on a regular basis. They would fly me, and that's when they started writing. She was now an alcoholic. She'd had these bad, and, and David Milch was writing these brilliant scripts for me. You know, I mean, they were just amazing, and that's why I won the Emmy. So I didn't ever thought I'd be back on the show. So that's it's always so shocking to me that I came back, and then they wrote this part for me, and they. And, um, and, and also David Milch wrote, you know, it's all about the writing. I have to mm-hmm. say everything I've done that I've got any kudos for mm-hmm. or anything is the storytelling element. You know, I, I try to bring everything I can to it, but these are great stories. These are great characters. It's <laughs> so deep and so deeply filled. And then I had the great Dennis Franz to work with. So um, it was shocking. Even Dennis, they were all surprised because back then what was starting to happen and still happens, I think a lot is these uh, Emmys for best supporting actors or featured actors and a, and a, a recurring a guest star. They were given to, they used to be like really just wonderful actors. Who did. Then they started changing to being like all movie stars or all mm-hmm. you know big stars. So for the most part, that would be like, a big star would get that who would come in and do like a, a, a cameo and then they get that Emmy. So I was up against, I can't remember who I was, but I know Dennis was, they were all kind of surprised too, because usually, it, you know, when they get these ballots, they just go for the names they know. Sure. I'm not really that well known. So it was a kind of a surprise. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, I remember that, uh, Robbie Marshall took, was my date at the, um, he was out there doing that. He was my date, to the Emmys and I had bought a dress at um, uh, I couldn't get anybody to help me with a dress because I'm not, I wasn't a tiny little number two. So I, I went to Saks and just bought a dress off the rack and went and I, I, they called my name and I couldn't believe it. And then I had to go and, and be interviewed by the press and they said, who made your dress? And I went, it was, um, I looked at the label. I said, uh, Saks for that. <laughs> no. So I, I was like, and then you have to go back because I won, I was able to go. Oh, first of all, that was the that that Emmy was at I call it the, uh, the peanuts and beer at the Holiday Inn Emmy because <laughs> it's not televised. It's all for the you know the technical awards and the guest star awards. So nobody really saw it. So then I got to go back to present an award 
And I, and I decided to wear the same dress. And somebody said, you can't do that. I said, well, nobody saw it. We were, I was, <laughs> I was at the Holiday Inn, you know, with the nuts and the beer. So who's going to see it? So I go back and I don't have a publicist or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just go and I say, hi, I'm Deborah Monk. I'm here. And they said, well, yeah, just get in line. So I got in line and I happened to be behind Jane Krakowski going down the line and she was all dressed up and, uh, they were all taking pictures of her and I was walking a little bit behind her and nobody took my picture and she was going, they were going Jane. And she was going, oh, Jane. And she went, hi, Deb. And I went, hi. I'm just walking by. Nobody's taking my picture. And finally I say, Hey Jane, I'll see you later. So I skipped that line. And then, <laughs> but uh, anyway, it was humbling and yet really quite amazing. With, with all the on-camera work, was there any ever desire to move out to Los Angeles? And, and Never. Great. Mm. Good. <laughs> I don't like, I, I mean, I love the working out there. Sure. But to be in LA and not working, I find to be so depressing for me. I just love New York. And I always wanted to do theater. I mean, and luckily, through a lot of these uh, television and movies, I was able to continue to work. They would work around me and let me do my my shows. Yeah. It was really important. I love living in New York. I'm a, a New Yorker. We love having you. Um, yeah. Is there is there anything that you haven't done yet in theater that you would like to do? You've You've done plays, musicals, revivals, new works. Is there anything you'd still like to cross off your bucket list? I'd love to do, I mean, I would just love to do another play, another musical. I never had those, like, these are the musicals I want to do, or these are the plays I want to do. I just still have so much more to learn as an Mm -hmm. actor. I feel like it would just be so great to be, and especially now, I mean, after having Broadway and off-Broadway and all theater closed for so long, it would be an honor. I mean, an incredible privilege and honor to be able to do a play again or to do a musical again. I mean, I hope I get that chance. I'm getting older, you know, but I, I, I would love to, I really would. Uh, It would be, I just feel like I I have so much to still learn as an actor, you know, so much to learn about, about, relaxation and really enjoying it and not being in it for the wrong, you know, not worrying about a laugh or, I mean, I want to have the wisdom to like think that even if it feels like it wasn't a great show that I learned something because not every show is going to be a perfect show, you know? And we all know we've gone out there and done these shows, which you think are great. And the reviews come out and it's not a good show, which in their mind. So I would like to get to the point where I can really enjoy the, the, that. And I get that, and I learn from the other actors, you know, to be to be able to work with a lot of different actors uh, would be great. So I, I'd love to be able to work again. Yeah. In, in quarantine, what have you been doing to keep yourself artistically satisfied? I know uh, Gilded Age is, is coming up, but what were you doing before that? I was doing lots of, like a lot of actors uh, and performers, benefits on Zoom, a lot of, um, I did those 24-hour play things where, you know, you, you were sent a monologue and I, and those were really interesting to do. I, I, I had, you had to memorize them and do them. So, you know, it was keeping everything oiled up. Yeah. Uh, did, I did, uh, we did a wonderful um, uh, production of singing and curtains of singing, um, uh, show people. We did that. Mm-hmm. That was a big, huge thing to put together. So I was singing and doing lots of, I did a, I did readings of plays. And uh, so that was really great. We kept, kept us quite busy, especially with the benefits, trying to come up with things to do to help, you know, to help to raise the money. That was the most important thing. Or most all these things that I did were to raise money. 
So it was really great. Uh, I, I, it's not my favorite thing to do because I'm not technically uh, sure. very skilled. And I always feel like it takes, you know, to do one thing would take me like four hours to yeah. figure out how to do it and do it right. It was just like exhausting, but I'm glad I was happy for that. Happy to do those things. I asked to be on panels. You know, I did those, whatever, whatever they asked me to do. I tried, if I was available, I wanted to do to help. The last question that we always ask our, our guests is, you know, what do you know now that you wished you had known when you, you know, you were just leaving SMU, you were first coming to the city. What do you know now that you wished you had known then? That I will never be perfect. <laughs> that there's no such thing. It's, it's, it's just a process. You know, I always start a show after all the rehearsal, you open up, but by the end of that experience, whether it be two months, three months, six months, you, I said, Oh my gosh, I wish I knew then when I first started, but you never will. So the idea is to let it unfold. And I'm trying to be more, relaxed about saying, okay, I'm not going to know everything. I'll do everything I can. The other thing is to do it technically is not a bad thing. Hmm. Sometimes you have to sing it technically. You have to act it technically. It doesn't mean you're not feeling it or the audience doesn't see that. Be a good technician is not a bad thing because what happens is you can then fill it. And I, like I've said, I've said, I've had many moments on where I don't really understand it. And sometimes I'm getting laughs. I don't really understand it. And then later on I go, oh my God, that's what that was. You know, you know, it was taking a pause. It was this or allowing, you know, allowing the silence to be there is a big thing. Not to feel like you have to rush is a big thing I've learned. Try to keep doing things, whether it be readings or workshops. And it's what I did. I've done a thousand readings you know, uh, also don't be afraid to audition for everything you feel you're right. And only audition for things you really are right for. Mm-hmm. If you, if you're, you know, a lot of people think I can audition for anything. And I tried that too. And that doesn't work, mm-hmm. but you know, um, to try to enjoy it, try to have a good time and, and, and know that things do, do get easier, easier in that you're able the wisdom of being able to take a silence, to make a mistake, to be in a failure. Um, to not get apart, uh, to see all your friends working and you're not working. Mm-hmm. That's a time to support them more than ever. You know, things like that. Those are things that I couldn't know when I was younger, you know, uh, because I, I do believe when one door shuts, another door opens, you know, I really do believe that. Yeah. So, but those are hard things, you know, uh, we want, especially when you're young, you want it all, you want it done, you want to get it, you want a bit, you want to be a star, you want a good thing, you want to make money and, and you should you know, but it doesn't always work that way. It didn't work that way for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Deborah, thank you so, so much for your time today. And also on behalf of us and all of our listeners, you know, like we said in the beginning, anytime that we know that you're going to be in a show, we know that we're going to have a brilliant, fantastic performance and it's going to be a transformative experience. Um, thank you so much for inspiring so many people with your brilliant artistry. And we can't wait to see you on stage again, hopefully sometime soon. Thank you, Robert and Kevin. Thank you for asking me to do this. It's always uh, fun to go down memory lane and it just makes me just feel incredibly grateful for, for everything and for everybody who's been so kind to me through this business. Thank you. This has been such an honor. Thank 
thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and more to shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back where in the orphanage, right? Back where she started. Yeah, true story. Rob saw it. Yes, and it was batty. It was bizarre. I was there. I was. Oh, God. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.